0: Hi, and welcome to Braving the Way with Dr. Fletch. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Adrian Fletcher, a psychologist living with dissociative identity disorder, what used to be known as multiple personality disorder. I am just one of the voices behind my DID system of 22 plus alters also known as parts and my parts and i are delighted to bring this podcast to you in its third season the name of my did system is blended to give you all just a little background i am a familial child sex trafficking survivor who has spent the last two decades working in the field of mental health as well as spent the last 10 plus years undergoing various western and eastern healing treatments to heal from the horrific trauma my parts and i have experienced My Parts are also the proud authors of One Soul Multiple Expressions, Poems by the Parts, and they are currently working on a new book for the DID community through new Harbinger publications called The Experiential Toolbox for Dissociative Identity Disorder, Purposeful Exercises for Your System of Parts. Estimated publication date is November of 2024. Here on the Braving the Way podcast, we are committed to having the harder conversations around all things mental health, and specifically DID. You should know that there is an estimated one to 3% of the population living with DID and we suspect that those numbers are much higher. It is also estimated that 70% of individuals living with DID attempt suicide at least once in their lifetime. I'm committed to changing the narrative. Unfortunately, there continues to be a lot of stigma about DID as well as other mental health conditions and we wanted to start a podcast with the hope of changing the narrative. The PARTS and I are committed to blazing a new trail and we are so honored that you are here with us to brave the way. We are here to brave the way with you and for you. Sometimes Dr. Fletcher will speak on this podcast and other times another part of her may share. We welcome, love, and respect all parts of any and all DID system, including our own. Thank you from the bottom of our heart for being here. And just to give you all a little disclaimer, I am not your psychologist and I am not your therapist. I am a human being alongside you on this journey here to brave the way for and with you. So let us together brave on. I am happy to announce that the Braving the Way with Dr. Fletch podcast is proudly sponsored by An Infinite Mind. An Infinite Mind was formed out of a need for accurate information on dissociative disorders. Their mission is to step into the light to stand for people living with dissociation. People living with dissociative identities, their supporters and therapists need access to accurate information and a community of people who understand and live or work with people living with dissociation. Their intention is to offer a trustworthy, joyful space to connect with survivors, supporters and clinicians. They strongly believe in promoting the strengths and struggles of people living with dissociative identities. In order to do this, An Infinite Mind offers education and outreach programs to dispel the myths and stigma around DID, training to improve the quality of care survivors receive from their therapists as well as train new therapists to enter the trauma field. They provide unique opportunities to those affected by dissociative disorders, people living with dissociation, their supporters, and therapists to come together and learn effective ways to improve lives and build community. It is their hope that people will no longer need to hide. They are there to support a future where people can be free to embrace the gifts and challenges that come along with dissociative identities. The brain is merely an organ, but the mind is an infinite. Thank you and in Infinite Mind for sponsoring the Braving Away with Dr. Fletch podcast. You can learn more about An Infinite Mind at aninfinitemind.org. You can find them on Instagram at, at aninfinitemind. Welcome back to the Braving the Way with Dr. Fletch pod. I am so excited to have Monica Ostroff here today. Monica is a certified eating disorders specialist and supervisor nationally recognized for her 25 plus years of experience and contributions to the field of eating disorders. She has directed several successful residential partial hospitalization and intensive outpatient eating disorder programs in addition to having her own thriving private practice. Monica is the co-author of Anorexia Nervosa, a guide to recovery, and a contributing author to self-harm behavior and eating disorders. She has presented at many national conferences, taught at the university level, and appeared on several radio and television broadcasts. Monica's passion for treating eating disorders and mentoring other professionals was born out of her own struggle and full recovery from what today is known as severe and enduring anorexia nervosa. She strongly believes in providing compassionate care that combines alternative healing with evidence-based modalities in addition to using meditation, yoga, and essential oils. She is certified in several alternative healing modalities. I I'm so excited. Some of you may have caught a recent live that we did in May for Mental Health Awareness Month over on the Meta um, Instagram page, and Monica and I are becoming, I think, pretty good friends, and um, yeah, she's really spent some time trying to get to know and connect with some of my parts, and eventually she'll come to Arizona and go shopping with me, and uh, I hope you all didn't think you were actually talking to Dr. Fletch right now, because it's totally age. (laughs) prior to recording and having Monica on, I met with the Lucifer system. So it was empowering and um, some switching. And um, I'm just delighted to have Monica here. And so I'll let her tell you a little bit about herself. And then we'll dive into talking about eating disorders and the treatment of PTSD and DID and go from there.
1: It'll be fun. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. And I feel like I don't really know what to say because that's such a I feel like the older I get, the longer my bio gets. And I kind of I'm like, where can I trim that shit down? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Amazing human badass. Oh, thank you r- thank you. <laughs> on the front lines of eating disorder care. And you know, you're the executive director over at the multi oh it's such a long name. Can you say it out loud for me? Multi-service eating disorders association. It yeah, is a long yeah. name. It is a long I'm, name. I'll make sure I link it in the show notes for everyone.
1: I've been sort of joking around with, um, there is an activist in the field, uh, Sharon Maxwell, her Instagram is like, Hey, Sharon Maxwell, she's fabulous. And I was joking around about my lack of filter, you know? So I just sort of say like filters are for coffee.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, I don't ever have a filter. I get in some kind of situation sometimes for that, but you know, same, it's all the vibe.
1: Same, (laughs) but I think you should consider that as a a t-shirt for your merch.
0: Yeah. 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 Thanks for that. For I'm, I'm excited. It's still pending. It's down at the uh the warehouse, you know, getting all that printed the braving the way. So thanks for planting that seed. Um I'm excited. There's so many complications to treating DID and eating disorders. And um we have a lot of curiosity from the community yeah. about man, and there are so many living out there living with DID that have just had kind of disappointing treatment or unsuccessful treatment because they didn't know they were a system. And then the therapist not doing appropriate screening and assessment or being turned away because they need to get the, um, the body weight up to do the trauma work. I mean, it's so, this is actually, I think people should know that this is actually kind of a controversial topic, eating disorders and and treatment.
1: Yes, it is. And I think, you know, this is something that you've said all along, you know, which is, for clinicians, when you're being trained, you don't really get any time that's spent on DID, OSDD, right? They're like, oh, this is really rare. I never see it skipping along to the next, right? Like it's So everybody's orientation, depending on your age bracket, everybody's orientation to DID is related to whatever the film du jour was during the time that you were watching films. So if you're older, it's Sybil, right? Mm -hmm, And if you're younger, it's one of the newer movies, none of which does a particularly good job or does a good job at all of portraying what living with DID is really like. Mm -hmm, And so therefore in training, Most clinicians are not trained to recognize the signs and symptoms of any type of complex dissociative disorder, unless they've done, you know, sort of training as part of their continuing education units with somebody like Janina Fisher or Pat Ogden, or um, I know structural dissociation has lovers and haters, but whatever. I mean, at least it helps you recognize what might be happening with I know.
0: I actually got asked to write a uh, forward for somebody else's book, and one of the theories they used was structural dissociation, and that's fine. But what I sent back to the to the publisher was, um, I just want this person to make note that there are other theories out there. Um, and and that kind of thing. And I also unfortunately have heard, and I, this is, I'm not spreading rumors, but I think it's important to report to the community what I learn and what I hear. Unfortunately, somebody had let me know that, um, they went to a training with Jana Fisher and was not, um, the, the feedback was that, the, that she was, um, saying not so great things about clients or portraying them in a certain way. And there needed to be some advocacy and a voice there for people with DID. And unfortunately, I have this experience when I attend some trainings on trauma and dissociation and, uh, recently had to call some people out, um, for the inappropriate jokes that ended up in the, in the chat. And even in that training that was specifically on trauma and dissociation with another organization, it was, uh at the end of the day and like mm, 25 minutes on DID. And I'm like, we're doing an entire two-day back-to-back training and we're only covering DID for 25 to 45 minutes. So I'm very, very concerned still. Yeah. So you talked about like the generational um where things are. I don't think the colleges and the universities and or the clinics are really doing appropriate um education on DID. And we we don't really have to get started on my love for internal family systems on, on this episode, we could do a whole nother one on that.
1: Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started. Now we've got people who don't have DID who think they do. And people who do have DID who think they don't like really. And we have people who are practicing IFS who are not actually therapists. Just yeah. Okay. We could go down a whole rabbit hole on that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) On the next season of braving the way season four (laughs) entirely on everyone's opinion on IFS. though there's a it's interesting that like there's a lot of
1: similarities right between complex associative disorders and also eating disorders in that clinicians are not well trained in either one yeah and then i believe the statistic is 40 percent of people who have did also have an eating disorder Mm -hmm. so now we have people who you know you have Trauma clinicians who are not trained at recognizing eating disorders and eating disorder clinicians not recognize, who are not able to recognize dissociation, and it is
0: really a big mess. Yeah, it's it's an umbrella of a mess. And I was in treatment for a long time with this diagnosis of EDNOS, eating disorder not otherwise specified, and working with a trauma therapist. And I don't know how they didn't discover the DID because my weight would go drastically up or drastically down. And I'm not talking about weight specifically, but it was like going from, I have one part that is, you know, can be an extreme restrictor when she's not well. And then I have another part that would just prefer to just eat candy all the time to cope with, you know, old feelings of of sexual abuse and, you know, binge eating and things like that. And for years, I had no idea that there were these two parts of me that were in in conflict, you know? And nobody helping you recognize that zero, zero help to recognize it was just like, oh, you know, we have to, um, you know, whatever it is, reduce shame or process trauma and it'll go away. And no, and I've been in recovery a really long time over 10 plus years. And those parts can still resort back to those old behaviors. If it depends on the stressor.
1: Yes that's one of the most challenging things i I was just having a conversation with a colleague of mine about a week or so ago, where I said, "You know, we have this section of folks who struggle with eating disorders um in this we call it severe and enduring right there. It's like kind of no matter what treatment has been rolled out they're still they're still sick with an eating disorder. Like how many of those people potentially have complex dissociation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've seen a, a number of folks who have had you know some pretty substantial eating disorders over the years and they've been in and out of hospitals and in and out of programs and in and out of, mm-hmm. or mostly in therapy mm-hmm. with, you know, relatively little improvement. Mm-hmm. And then when you get to talk with them, if you're somebody who's doing potentially like a consult, you know, for a team or a consult for a client who's seeking another opinion and you start hearing all of these red flags for dissociation, right? There's amnesia, there is confusion amongst the team. There's been multiple diagnoses. There have been medications and treatments that haven't worked. Mm-hmm. Like all these signs and symptoms that really point towards complex dissociation, but nobody's looked at it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Whether the whether the trauma history is known or unknown, nobody has considered that as a potential differential diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And
0: it doesn't even make sense to me because. I- And everybody has different clinical opinions, but, you know, eating disorders are typically, from my understanding, formed out of, you know, unresolved types of trauma. Yeah. Right. So it's like, how are Uh, we not assessing for or even paying attention to? And there are so many eating disorder residential programs and things like that when you're trying to even refer clients you do know that have DID and they're like, yeah, yeah. Well, we treat eating disorders, but we don't treat DID. And I'm thinking, do you know how many patients you probably have in your residential setting that have DID that you don't even know? Yeah. It boggles my mind this, we don't treat DID. Do you know how many intensive programs I went to that they didn't even know I had DID and I did just fine?
1: Yeah. Yep. No doubt. What we've done to people, unfortunately, is we've gotten them on this sort of turnstile of... You get them stable with their eating disorder, they start trauma work, they relapse with their eating disorder, they go back into eating disorder treatment, they get stable, they go back into trauma treatment, they relapse. Like it's insane. Why are we doing that to people? Why are we separating care? Why are we not treating the Mm -hmm. whole human being? Mm -hmm. There has been this narrative for many years in the eating disorder field that basically says, well, you gotta get somebody almost 100% stable with their eating disorder before you treat their trauma. And that is categorically not true.
0: Uh, I am (laughs) living proof that (laughs) that is not true.
1: Right. I mean, it's kind of, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I mean, yes, there is some validity to, you need some cognitive function to be able to engage in therapy. So like, depending on somebody's medical stability, you might have to get medical stability. Well, on board, right. But I think right?
0: that, yeah, that's different that yes, if you're medically compromised, I understand if you're significant, if you're significantly medically compromised with an eating disorder, I get it. But even then, I think there are safe ways to do the trauma work, even within those settings where they're being <laughs> medically stabilized. If anything, that's the place to do it because they're under, supervision they're they're being watched and monitored with all the medical care right there like that would be the primary place to do that that type of treatment at least in in this in my opinion
1: it's a super valid good opinion in my opinion (laughs) this (laughs) concept of like splitting people up you know they wonder why everybody feels so fragmented it's like you can't even get care for yourself because you've got to go see this specialist for that and that specialist for this and you're all over the place and nobody has your whole story and you don't get good care that way right so whether it's you know eating disorder providers saying sorry i don't treat trauma i don't do
0: that what is that i i don't understand i don't treat trauma eating disorder professionals saying they don't treat trauma
1: Yes, there are definitely eating disorder professionals who will say, I don't treat trauma unless it's, uh, you know, potentially like a one-time, if there is such a thing as uncomplicated PTSD, I've heard that term thrown around, they might treat a one-time traumatic experience and the fallout from that. But if you have any type of developmental trauma or long-term trauma, sorry, I don't do that. You have dissociation. Sorry, I don't do that. And likewise, I've met many um, therapists, including my own who will say, I don't treat eating disorders. Like, really? <laughs> well, if 40% of people with DID, and that doesn't include right, the rest of the dissociative mm-hmm. diagnoses or trauma diagnoses, but 40% of those folks have eating disorders and anywhere from 65 to 80% of people who have eating disorders, depending
0: on what study you
1: read has trauma. What are we doing?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even when, cause I'm, you know, a certified EMDR therapist and EMDR approved consultant, and I don't really do clinical work anymore, but when I would be doing the trauma work, if there was like more of like helping people with like the meal planning aspect of things or the behavioral modification, um and I know everybody does things differently, and there may be some people that disagree with this, but this is how I was trained in my residency because we worked with different professionals that kind of did all different types of things my colleague who's, who really, this is her specialty, body image, eating disorders and trauma, but she's not certified in EMDR. So we would consult and then she would have her client, you know, she would be doing the talk therapy and like the adding in the nutritional aspect of things, all that. And then I would be doing the trauma work, but consulting and, and letting the therapist know what was, what we were working on. And then she would work on more like the behavioral modification stuff or getting the family involved. And I would do the trauma piece, but it doesn't mean that she wasn't also doing the trauma piece. It's just that I was I had the EMDR experience and the yes. certification to do the more deeper trauma work. um and if if I remember correctly and it's been a long time since I've looked at eating disorder research and treatment, it isn't the best outcome for eating disorder treatment multi um uh, multidisciplinary where you're factoring in like trauma work and support in like um behavioral stuff, registered dietitian, like kind of putting almost like a team in place. Yeah,
1: multidisciplinary team has been the standard of care for a long time. With needing a PCP on board to monitor yep. physical status, a dietitian for nutrition, uh, potentially a prescriber mm-hmm. of some sort, and a therapist for sure. The modalities in terms of evidence based work and what is proving to be um, the most effective that has longevity has shifted a little bit. You know, we have talked about. Oh god. I so think
0: the can... the answer on my licensing exam many moons ago. Man, I don't ever want to look at that thing again. <laughs> Not that that's accurate either, but I think it was family therapy for eating disorders for kids.
1: Mm-hmm. For, um FBT still is the gold standard for um kids and adolescents. But looking at really what seems to be working for people, it's really uh getting back into the individual's wisdom,
0: mm-hmm.
1: utilizing mm-hmm. intuitive eating getting people to a place where they can really recognize their interceptive cues, which includes their emotions Mm -hmm. and coming from a haze informed or haze aligned perspective, which is a health at every size approach that the body diversity exists for a reason. We can all eat and move exactly the same. and We're all going to look different
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and, you know, really beginning to understand how, the media the diet industry the fitness industry mm-hmm. and the wellness industry has really sold us a problem that we can't fix and a bill of goods that has that we've all bought into um, mm-hmm. through yeah. the insecurity that advertisements has instilled within us and it's kind of normal if you're living in our culture to right. want to change your body given what we're exposed to But when we get back to that internal knowledge, when we can help people really embody themselves, like drop down inside your body, what do things feel like Mm -hmm. emotionally, physically? I mean, I ask people, how do you, how do you know you're hungry?
0: You know, what I used to really love is the hunger fullness scale. That was like a new concept to my parts, because unfortunately with my trauma, there was a lot of food deprivation and then a lot of coping and, um, uh, providing food and treats after abuse and like just so messed up on so many levels. But, you know, it was hard for my body and the different parts to recognize like what, you know, there were some parts that were so stuck in trauma time, they thought they were starving, you know? Yeah. And, um, just could eat and eat and eat and eat. And then I had others that were, you know, just trying to deal with that fear and the loss of control. And so wouldn't eat at all. And the hunger fullness scale was like a game changer for the parts, like teaching them, like, this is how we know we're actually hungry when we check in with our bodies. This is when we know we've eaten too much you know? um, And I still remember like, if you're over a seven, you probably don't need to eat anymore. You're, you're, you know, kind of satiated. And I know everybody has a different version of the hunger fullness scale. And I remember like a zero being like, you literally are like, you have no food, (laughs) you
1: know, like, yeah, we we do it a little bit different these days. And it's actually really relevant for, for folks who are systems, you know, because it, if we're helping people get inside their body, right. Something that people with trauma don't do, you know, we love to live like chin up. Can I think about all of this? Some people will say, I know I'm hungry. If my stomach growls. I just heard heard a part go. Is she calling us out right now? Just relax a little bit. It's okay, honey. Love yous. (laughs) Love yous all very much. But, you know, if this is the part where I think about how convoluted treatment is, and it's, it doesn't have to be if people just know what they're looking at, right? If we're teaching people how to recognize hunger cues, which is, there are subtle cues, right? Like if you're thinking about food or you're starting to get irritable, you can't focus or concentrate, you might be a little lightheaded. Has it been, you know, a couple hours since you've eaten? And also sometimes you just want food. Like that's okay too. You don't have to always be physically hungry to eat, Mm -hmm. but hunger cues are the most overthought body cue that we have, right? If you think about it, I use this example all the time. If you eat breakfast at seven o'clock and you have cereal, coffee, and maybe you have a little yogurt or something like that, or fruit, who knows? And at nine o'clock, if you're like, oh, I can't stop thinking about like the donut in the other room or whatever it is, or, you know, I just can't focus on writing this email. Like, I think maybe I'm hungry. Wait a minute, what time is it? Nine Mm o'clock? What time do I have to Seven? (sighs) I can't be hungry. mm -hmm. And the person like dives back into their work, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you also had a cup of coffee at seven, right? And so if nine o'clock rolls around, you're like, oh, I think I got to pee. You don't look at the clock and go like, well, when did I drink my coffee? Do I really have to pee? Oh my God, it's only nine. I don't don't think I have to pee yet. I'm just going to hold it. mm -hmm. No, we have been socialized to ignore and second guess our hunger cues versus being able to pay attention to when we need to go empty our bladder. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when you think about just that being a challenge for people who are singletons and not plural, Mm -hmm. you add in plurality and things like you just described of having food be really confusing because Mm -hmm. sometimes it's a reward a treat a comfort a distraction like it has so many different roles Mm -hmm. and you have different parts to work with Mm -hmm. some of whom have pieces of information some of whom do not Mm -hmm. some who are oriented time and space some of whom are not they all need similar pieces of information while we're working to reduce amnestic barriers and get that cooperation and collaboration going. Right. I do.
0: Yeah. I do have a question for you on the treatment of DID and I just want to get your thoughts on this. So, and no judgment either way, if you have to call it out for what it is. So I had this therapist, you know, I was, we're trying to figure out like, how do we give the little parts, the snacks that they want without and teaching them healthy behavior with food, recognizing those cues and not restricting them from anything. Right. Cause some of them have really been deprived. Um, and sometimes when I say this stuff out loud, it just kind of hits me of just the reality of the things I went through. But she used to say like, well, in your cabinet, just like make little cubbies for each part with their snacks. And, and I was just telling the Lucifer did it system. Like that was the worst idea ever because then it's like, a little part doesn't understand, like, when they see their little cubby bin, they're they're not like, oh, I get one snack today and one tomorrow. They're like, little packets of M&Ms, I'm going all in. I'm go- They might not be there, you know, the next day. And so they, you know, and again, I understand it's about reducing amnestic barriers, but that was a terrible idea. That was a junk food binge weekend because the little parts were like, oh, my God, we finally have all of this stuff. I'm going to eat it all right now.
1: Well... It is a terrible idea, but it's a ter- I think it's a terrible idea for a number of reasons. One, anytime we are in a mode of deprivation, our bodies physiologically and emotionally are always going to try to compensate for that. When we've been in starvation, and what's a diet? A diet is actually starvation. Mm-hmm. And when somebody's withheld food, what's that? Deprivation starvation we are going to get a physiological response that's going to try to store up so that we are ready for the next bout of starvation. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if you're in a deprivation mindset, which says, for example, M&Ms are bad, or you can only have one packet of M&Ms a day, when you get in front of M&Ms, you're going to eat more M&Ms than you're comfortable with, or more than you intended to, mm-hmm. because right. of that deprivation mindset. So mm-hmm. truthfully, People get scared about this, but what really works is to remove the rules Mm -hmm. and to say, you can have whatever you want, whenever you want it. Mm -hmm. And that might mean that you have a period of several weeks, maybe more of very chaotic eating that would make sense given Mm -hmm. history, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you have that much deprivation and that much chaotic eating as a result of trauma, or whatever the reason. It doesn't have to just be trauma. Mm -hmm. You will have chaotic eating when you remove the rules. But when your body and your parts realize, oh, wait a minute, I really can have whatever I want, whenever I want it, they start to check in to see how they feel. Mm -hmm. This works really well for parts who recognize that they actually have a body, right? Like we can acknowledge there are parts that don't actually have any connection to the physical body mm-hmm. so this doesn't actually work for those parts mm-hmm. but for the parts that do we teach them to check in with well how did it feel when you ate 84 bags of m&ms i'm mm-hmm. exaggerating obviously mm-hmm. but you know then they can say like well actually i got a stomachache, and i had a headache and i was really sleepy and i didn't mm-hmm. actually feel that good okay so now that you know that about yourself do you want to eat 84 bags of m&ms tomorrow mm-hmm. well now oh. where's the sweet spot for you no pun intended but mm-hmm. you know When we can get in touch with the physical body and see what we want emotionally, how it tastes, and then how it feels, how does our body react to it? We can make individualized decisions that are best for us, Mm -hmm. knowing that we're all going to look the same. We're not going to look the same no matter what we do, even if we eat the same. Right. So eat according to your body's wisdom. So Mm -hmm. teaching five-year-old parts, you can have what you want when you want it. It'd be nice if you throw in some fruits, vegetables, and proteins in there, but I get that you might
0: have. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck to my system. Berries, (laughs) I can get the little parts to eat. Berries,
1: berries are good. Mm -hmm. And every now and then, there's those adolescent parts and the adult parts that come in and eat a meal, right? So it's fine.
0: Oh my god, with Joey, it's it's chicken wings, pizza, and um, yeah. I want to eat with Joey. Joey Joey is very chill. He's just, he doesn't come around very often, but yeah, he's the beer drinker too. But um, that's how I I can usually tell if he's he's around. I love that. That's a great
1: visual, like beer, chicken wings and pizza. I'm like, of course. That's
0: yeah. And UFC fighting. It's a good time. Of course. (laughs) It makes a lot of sense to me. But he's a part where it's it's interesting, though, because although he has preferences for, for that, never gets out of control with the drinking and never gets out of control with the pizza and the chicken wings. It's just kind of like his vibe. And he's not around very, very often um, where I have a 10 year old part, horrific trauma that I haven't shared publicly, um, you know, th- does the, the eating of the snacks to cope with with um, with those feelings of of the sexual abuse from the, from the past. So it's just interesting how, Again, the system is so intricate in, in how they function and, and what they do. And obviously I live life with functional multiplicity. There's no severe eating disorder over here, but it's still a pain right. in the butt sometimes to manage life with so many parts and their food choices and then teaching them, you know, all the things. But I, I have realized that that part has gotten a lot better. It's less intense. Um, and there was no awareness for so long. Like food would go missing and my husband would be like, what, where did the- And then, you know, when we started to figure it all out and had the awareness of the parts, but for a lot of these people that are in treatment, they don't, they might not have awareness of their parts yet and things that that they're doing.
1: Yeah. And people, you know, there's no awareness of the parts and they're just following these rules and they don't even know, like the rules don't even mean anything to them. They can't stop, but they don't have the recognition that there's actually a part in
0: control. It's so confusing. Well, I feel like it's a perpetual cycle of failure like not literal failure, but for the person to internalize shame and failure, like I'm going to the eating disorder therapist, I'm showing up, but things aren't changing. Right. Um, and I don't just mean weight. I'm talking about just things not changing in general and because people are not aware of their, their parts. So, and then I think therapists, eating disorder therapists, and I, when I talk about other therapists, I'm not saying all therapists, but certain ones sure. can be very kind of like when they get on kind of those rigid behavioral contracts, it can it can feel like you're the client is disappointing you. Like the clients can feel like they're they're not oh. doing the work or not showing up the way that they're supposed to because again of the the rules and stuff, you know. People talk about failing recovery all the time, right? Or feeling like so they're, sad. their team is gonna.
1: It really is heartbreaking between, you know, oh, I feel like I'm failing recovery or I'm disappointing my team or I'm afraid my team is going to stop working with me. Basically, think about abandonment wounds, right? Or any type of reactivation of attachment wounds. I'm not good enough. So my team is going to quote unquote, get rid of me. It's always a and threat. It's always a threat. And it's so the absolute opposite of therapeutic.
0: Well, and it just recreates trauma reenactment from the past, right? Many of us who struggle with eating stuff had typically somebody in the house who was sending mixed messages around food so even i'll give you an example from my own childhood. my mom had a had an eating disorder, and there's still people in my family that disagree with this, but I lived with my mom a lot you know when I was younger and parts of my young adult life and she would <laughs> she would have this little tiny box of, uh, or one of those little plastic containers of this trail mix. And every night after dinner, she would either have like a teaspoon of trail mix or two or three pieces of chocolate. But if, and if, and this is when I was the only one living with her, if there was any missing, she would look at you and go, did you eat that? Like, and you know, knowing that I was the only one in the house, (laughs) um, I don't know. And there was just a lot of mixed messages. And I noticed as a postdoctoral resident, like we had access to whatever diet Cokes and soda and cookies and all these things. I would always go grab a bag of trail mix and I would hide it under my, um, looking back, I would reflect on this. I would hide it under my, whatever my purse or my binder. Like, like it was some shameful thing that I was going to get trail mix. And it was based on a childhood wound. But my mom always made me feel like, It was never, I was either, you know, too heavy or too thin when I was really sick. There was no love and acceptance for just being and so many mixed messages around food. If you didn't eat, she would be like, why are you not eating? If you did eat, she'd say things like, did you, are you really going to eat all that? Are you really going to wear that today? And so constantly when I was younger, I'd be like, mom, do I look fat? And I could, there was a time where I was so dangerously thin. She's like, what's going on with you? You're like wasting away. And I'm like, oh my God. It's like these double bind um, messages. And yeah. I know I'm not alone in that experience. Many people have had, you know, those family of origin messages get passed down around food. And so if you have that experience when you're going in for treatment with a therapist or a clinical team, it's just re-traumatizing. Oh,
1: a hundred percent. The whole, it's one of those things when I think about it, you know, there's, there are so many problems that need fixing and the the root, you know, this, this sort of like fat phobic root of everything actually kills people. So we have people who live in fat bodies and they're supposed to be in fat bodies. That's what their genetics dictates. And there's multiple things that go into our shape and size, like our microbiome, our toxic load, like their medication. There's so many things that determine our shape and size. And those people are dying and they're dying because of the fat phobia. They walk into Mm -hmm. doctor's offices with medical issues where they can't breathe and they're being told to lose weight and they're not getting scans or lab work done. And they go home and they try to lose weight. And it turns out all along that they can't breathe because they have things like pulmonary edema, Mm -hmm. which doesn't have anything to do with their weight, but they were never scanned
0: Mm -hmm.
1: versus, you know, if you have thin privilege, you can walk in with those same problems and you're immediately going to get a chest CT done. You're going to get lab work done. Mm -hmm. And it's, our system is so fucked up Mm -hmm. and it's so, uh, I don't even have a word for it. Mm -hmm. I worry, I worry a lot about this really large population
0: of people, you know, people that live in large cities. I'm glad you I'm I brought up it. the medication piece because, um, and when I speak about this stuff, it's just easier to share pieces of my own experience. I don't talk about clients I've worked with i that's just not something I do um, but one of the things was, oh, after my unraveling, they put me on a whole bunch of medications, and I remember the psychiatrist, one of them saying you are going, well, it was at the time where I needed to actually restore my weight, but she was like, cause I had lost like 50 to 60 pounds rapidly because I was so sick. My brain couldn't register that I need food. Um, that was my massive triggering event that was unraveling, but, um, she put me on some medication and she was like, you will gain weight and you're probably going to feel like you're going to want to eat everything. I massively gained that weight back. And then when I got off of that one and they put me on something else, I was like, my, you know, this is still something's wrong here. And the doctor's like, yeah, it's not the medication, but there's a lot of different medications that cause different things related to hunger or the swelling. You know, there's other medications that help first with sleep and they cause swelling and water retention. And, you know, nobody's really looking at all of that or explaining that to clients that are struggling with eating disorder stuff. So they just feel like a constant failure, you know, and unfortunately many people do come bring it to about the weight going up or down or or all that, you know? Really
1: what we need to do is move away from numbers, right? Mm -hmm. Because numbers are things that our brains will grab onto and obsess over Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we'll try to achieve when really what we need to do is go back inside each individual body, Mm -hmm. understanding Mm -hmm. that humans come in all different shapes and sizes. They always have, we always will. Bodies are designed to change. Right. Like none of us are designed to maintain our birth weight throughout life. Right. right. Like nobody's eight pounds when they're 50.
0: Right. We're That's supposed a good to metaphor. All these
1: different ways.
0: Yeah. Um, do you want to take some questions from our. Um, Insta followers. Sure. T- told them that you were going to be here today and they probably have the really good eating disorder questions. Right. I, you know, I could just blab to you all day long. Um, I could talk with you for hours. So, about, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're just going to have a continuous live stream of Braving the Way. Um, All right. I have to always We we might finish by 2024. It depends.
1: (laughs) We'll finish in time to go to our favorite conference.
0: Yeah. Archive. Okay. I have to always go back into my stories and find where it was. Here you are. All right. Let's see. Ooh. Hot topic. Because you got a lot of them. You ready? Sure. Um I'm always I'm always ready for a good question. Uh oh, well this one we already covered, but I'd love to hear you weigh in a uh, tips for coping and being told by therapists that you're too complex and beyond their beyond their expertise. So
1: <laughs> yes, a few thoughts on that one.
0: One. Oh, wait, hang on. I see the other side of it. I guess I had to fill it in twice. Tips for coping with being told by therapists that you're too complex and beyond their scope and feeling like you're broken and beyond help. So I guess that would be related to you go for help. They tell you they can't help you because you got the complex trauma. What do you do when you're just feeling so broken?
1: Yeah. I mean, number one, right? Somebody's lack of skill is not a statement about who you are as a human being. Love that. You're never going to be, quote, too broken, too damaged, too fill in the blank. You're you. Your experience is always going to be uniquely yours, right? It's different from mine, it's different from yours, different from, you know, other people's that you know. But that doesn't mean, I mean, I'm trying to, it doesn't mean it has moral value. It just Mm -hmm. is what it is. So I'm always curious about providers who say, oh, you're too complicated for me. Like, what is that? You know, yeah. is that, you know, is that um I wish I people could just, just like take direct, owners-
0: right? ownership and just say, you know, I like if there's a desire not to work with somebody with an eating disorder, just lovingly say that you know this is you know something that might be challenging and i'm not able to do it it's not that i don't you know what i mean it's not that you're too complex it's just i i don't want to or i'm not able or i want to find you someone who can be emotionally attuned in that way i feel like therapists just don't they pawn it off that it's the client's problem instead of taking ownership for something they do or don't want yeah. to do you know
1: i struggle a lot with that because i feel like what they're saying is i'm too lazy or don't feel like getting the consultation supervision or training that i need and that I should have mm-hmm. my suggestion sometimes for people, well, a couple of things, right? You know, do you have other options for providers? Mm-hmm. Are there other people that are available? Um, is this somebody who you need you wanted to see for a specific reason? Is that provider able to work in tandem with another provider? Not my favorite choice, mm-hmm. but it can it can work. I mean, you explained. <laughs> a situation or scenario in which it can work really well, where you had a friend or you Mm -hmm. have a friend Mm -hmm. colleague who was treating folks with eating disorders, but didn't have EMDR. You explained how that could work really well. That's a possibility for people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I find people get scared of eating disorders because of the medical complications and there are people that don't want to learn about them, but that's also why you have a doctor on the team. Yeah. I think there are many therapists who don't fully understand liability.
0: Mm -hmm. issues and they get they're scared Mm -hmm. yeah um all good points and here's a good one um anything involving making meals easier for such a diverse number of parts holy shit
1: (laughs) i mean it's like it's the negotiation piece right
0: like Hey, man, we had to negotiate this weekend. So it ended up this is the meal that was this weekend when we were having a really hard time on Saturday after all this exposure to trafficking and using our voice and everything. It was this is the meal they decided on. It took them five to six hours to decide on this meal. It was pepperoni pizza, Caesar salad and creme brulee. And then they were pissed because the restaurant messed up and added mushrooms to the pepperoni pizza, which changed the flavor. And then the little was all upset it was a whole vibe, but that was a, but I'm giving an example of a system compromise where it was like something good and yummy that the littles and teens wanted, you know, the adults wanted to make sure you got in some veggies and had the salad and, you know, and then a little bit of a dessert. And then we split half the meal with, with the husband.
1: Yes. Which is such a great way of doing it. I'm thinking of all these different scenarios, you know, for like, depending on the level of communication that you have in your system. mhm Um, If you have really good communication and you can hear everybody's or most, whoever wants to weigh in on what they want to eat, right? Right. Mm -hmm. If you have a part that has a pretty active eating disorder and is really sort of like terrified and is Mm -hmm. getting really um, overbearing, Mm -hmm. you can explain to that part that it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to explode into shrapnel. Nothing is going to happen. Mm -hmm. You're just going to eat a meal. Food is food. Like a lot of times the eating disorder parts really need education, which Mm -hmm. is all Uh food breaks down into the same macros. Everything breaks down into glucose, fatty acids, amino acids. Cookie, carrot breaks down into the same thing. Your body doesn't actually know the difference. Micronutrients are different. Mm -hmm. That's fact. That's science. Mm -hmm. That can be helpful for overbearing parts. Once you get the overbearing parts Mm -hmm. to settle down, It's easier to be like, what is the most important thing for us today? Is it feeling comfort? Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, what feels most comforting to all of you? Mm -hmm. And Uh you may end up with a pretty funny looking meal Mm -hmm. and that's okay. Uh Like it's totally fine.
0: You know, yeah, again, it's the rules, right? It's like getting rid of the rules or the expectations about how we've kind of been programmed as a society and culture as to what breakfast is supposed to look like or lunch or dinner or how, if you have this, you're not supposed to have that. And it's just a mess. And people just get so overwhelmed with, with all of that, you know? hundred percent.
1: Like when, if you can get those rules out the window, your your body can sustain itself on all sorts of foods. Like there are no good foods. There are no bad foods. If it's just a matter of making the decision because this one wants a peanut <laughs> butter sandwich, that one wants pizza. This other one wants baked chicken that wants broccoli. And this one wants sweet tart. I just heard tell her Oreos are in fact a good food. <laughs> they are. They break down into <laughs> glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids. They're great. And they taste good.
0: Oh, I love the other parts. Um, how to battle cortisol and, um, and like decreasing the cortisol in the, in the belly, you know, and that's a trauma thing too. And I don't know if, yeah. if, if that's in your, in your wheelhouse, if you want to weigh in on that.
1: Partly. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we really, that we recommend folks do is really work long and hard on calming the body down and to try to get system agreement on how to do that. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite simple ways is breathing techniques, right? Whether it's box breathing or relaxing breath doesn't really matter but doing it before you get out of bed, mm-hmm. before each meal and snack and before you go to bed mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. you are doing that purposefully throughout the day or just incorporating in things, simple things like the butterfly hug to get that bilateral stimulation to activate the parasympathetic nervous system to calm the body down. Mm-hmm. You have too much cortisol because you're stuck in your sympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. Unless you have a different type of endocrine disorder, but that's you know, for most trauma survivors, like mm-hmm. we are just locked. One stuff of the
0: f- that- yeah, one of the first times I saw a body worker, this was at a uh, healing trauma retreat, and he was a shaman as well. But the the work I was doing with him was was body work, and uh, he was telling me one that my adrenals were super fatigued, but that actually the oxygen wasn't going all the way through my body, like my breath would stop. And there are certain times where if I'm reliving something from the past, my husband will be like, you just like stopped breathing for a little bit. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Of course me, right. I'm always like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I literally just watched you stop breathing. You know, I think some of us for with, um, you know, again, the healing from trauma thing. I think you're absolutely right. Right. The body needs to relax, which is going to reduce some of that inflammation. Yes. We always want to make sure you go and get it all ruled out all the medical stuff. Yeah. I'm a big believer on that going myself today for a thyroid ultrasound to see if my thyroid medication is working appropriately, you know, but, um, but yeah, I think it's really important. I like that about the breathing exercises and teaching the parts, how to reduce their stress. Cause each one is so different, you know, I, like Joey is not stressed at all. <laughs> He's just chilling, you know, Nancy's like Whoa. OCD revved up workaholic. I'm like, you need to chill out girl, which is why I take over for her. sometimes. Yeah.
1: It's like, how do you unwind the the parts that are wound up tighter than tops?
0: Yeah. Nancy's having a hard time with the, you know, letting the other parts out and be seen out in the world, but it's good. It's good for, her. you know, gotta <laughs> let go of that control.
1: She um, might have some
0: cortisol going on right now. For sure. Um, managing, oh, we've kind of talked about this, managing the different opposing eds that the different parts can have. We talked about that. And again, it's really going to depend on that system communication and cooperation and why it's important to kind of spend time connecting with parts, I think, to just get the data that you can without being frustrated. You know, sometimes you get a lot of information, sometimes you don't. Um, You have a question on anything related to orthorexia. Um, There's not a lot of resources and somebody was just wondering your thoughts on that.
1: You know, orthor- i mean, orthorexia is a this concept of eating clean, exercising a lot. It's st- it's all diet culture, which is what okay. almost every eating disorder is rooted in, right? So it's trying to keep the body healthy, thin, and muscular because that's the body type that is elevated in our society. And the reality is, when you keep when you keep looking at research, food is food is food. It's still all breaking down into the mm-hmm. same. Own it. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't, I don't necessarily get into people's preferences of organic versus conventional. I think eating organic is a very privileged thing to be able to do in a mm-hmm. world where we have lots of folks who are food insecure. Um, if it's something that is important to you for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, kind of have at it, but my, my personal and professional experience has been that in order to go as far as you can in eating disorders recovery, you have to go through a period of time where you remove all rules. And that includes rules around organic versus conventional okay. and processed versus unprocessed. Convenience foods mm-hmm. are fine mm-hmm. for people to eat like they've been demonized by the 1.3 trillion dollar wellness culture. Mm-hmm. I think we all have to get, in my opinion, a little bit more, what's the word that I'm looking for? I think we need to question when we are looking at industries that are $1.3 trillion, (laughs) which is the wellness industry, or $72.6 billion, which is the diet industry, or $33.3 billion, which is the fitness industry. Look at the dollar amounts. Is it possible that maybe they don't actually have your individual best interest at heart? (laughs) Inspired (laughs) Mo with the facts. facts. I like it. Maybe it's just profit.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's so much out there on, on all that. Yep. And I think there's nothing wrong with, there are occasionally sometimes where I have so much inflammation in my body because the parts have been eating things that I'm actually allergic to and not supposed to be freaking having. And so we have to kind of do a reset with like drinking a lot of water and getting that inflammation under control. Um, And one of the doctors was like, we can see which foods are actually causing the major reactions. And it doesn't mean that you, he actually, what he actually suggested for me and my my body was that we can remove some things to decrease the inflammation, to get a kind of almost like a baseline, but then we actually slowly want to introduce some things because If you go out and um, I'll give you an example. Um, I have inflammatory reactions to ice cream, not all dairy, but ice cream. And it makes me feel like my body is on fire. I also do think that's part of a trauma related thing. And so when I removed ice cream completely and then I had it again, it felt like double the fire I had ever felt. So he said, oh, I need to teach you (laughs) to slowly have small amounts so that you kind of almost are working with the allergy kind of a thing. And again, please seek medical, you know, feedback Mm -hmm. for whoever is listening. If you have inflammation stuff, you know, always check with your doctor about that kind of stuff. But I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Like if they're, you know, because especially with parts, because... You know joey might not ever want an ice cream but a does and she's five she's not always out right but when she is out i if she wants that i want to be able to give that to her where another part might just go off the rails with it so i mean it is really multi-layered with the did stuff so challenging
1: i um i with people i have advanced lyme disease and also had toxic mold toxicity and mm-hmm. uh, part of the treatment for that is the suggestion of altering your diet. So as somebody who had a really bad <laughs> and long-term eating disorder, right? That it was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I did actually radically alter my diet for a period of time. And it was very helpful mm-hmm. in oh. reducing inflammation in my body and getting some of my lab work under control. So you could see, you could literally see things shifting
0: mm-hmm. like okay.
1: my C4A coming down as mold was coming out of my body. Um oh, my T4, beta one starting to come down, which is an inflammatory marker. It's a cytokine. Um and to be honest, mm-hmm. it was really fucking dangerous mm-hmm. because of the severity of my eating well, it doesn't even matter severity aside, because of my eating disorder, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a pathway in the brain that gets lit up again. Um, and mm-hmm. what I've learned to do is be really aware of that pathway in the brain. So I have a brain that really likes symmetry Mm -hmm. and that really likes, um, patterns. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really open with people. I'm like, yeah, you know, like I don't, I'm an, I love to be active. I love to be outdoors. I don't do the same thing. I don't Mm -hmm. walk the same route. I don't take the dog along the same path every single day. Mm -hmm. I don't run a certain amount. I don't run. (laughs) I used Mm -hmm. to I run, but you know, I, I make Mm -hmm. sure that mixing it up is my routine. Otherwise on day four, I will wake up and I will have, I will feel like I have to do something in order to be okay. And to think, so when you get to, when you learn what your patterns are and what the patterns of your parts are, Mm -hmm. you have the ability to create routines and habits for yourself that you can all benefit Mm -hmm. from. Mm -hmm. So if you have parts, for example, that don't know that you have a physical body, then um, that's a day that that, if that part is really present and Mm -hmm. fronting, that's a day that's really helpful to eat by the clock Mm -hmm. because that part is not attuned at all to any type of body cue, craving or anything. Mm -hmm. It doesn't care Mm -hmm. about, right? And sometimes if you have littles that are fronting a lot of the day, it can also help Mm -hmm. to ask a caretaker part. Mm Mm-hmm be as present as possible to make sure that some other foods that might make your physical body feel better, get taken in on that day.
0: Yeah, and I don't I don't know how common this is for other people living with DID, but I experience it when when the the physical body is going through hunger, Um, and obviously again it does you know I have a couple of parts that don't identify with the with the body, but um well more than a couple, but I'm thinking more of the ones that I would call almost associative fictives. They're there, but they kind of float and whatever. But anyway, long story short, when the physical body feels hungry, it can cause a massive switch. And so I learned early on in my, um, in my own recovery with DID to always have something in my purse, whether it's like in in Arizona, it's kind of hard because everything freaking melts in the summer, but like a protein bar or something satiating. So in the event that, you know, I come to and recognize like, you know, in that moment, I can actually help prevent a switch from um, happening by eating a little bit of something, you know?
1: Yeah. And some people, the other thing that's worth mentioning is um, some folks who have restricted for periods of time, their ghrelin hormone really doesn't regulate for a long time. Mm -hmm. And your ghrelin hormone hormone is what regulates that feeling of hunger. Mm -hmm. You know, so sometimes people just don't have hunger cues. Mm -hmm. So your body still needs food.
0: Yeah, Annalyn McCord talked about that on the last episode on the of the Braving the Way for season two on how um you know she would get real hangry, but had no recognition that she hadn't eaten you know all day. Yes. and she was like, "Somebody feed her," you know, kind of a thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's an overwhelming, overwhelming feeling. <laughs> um, I can tell you stories about that, Jesus. <laughs> um. Oh, here's a, here's a, we're, you're covering some of it, but it's like tips on creating sustainable eating patterns when there's daily amnesia and food aversions. You kind of talked about like having a structure and routine in place. I also worked with this consultant a long time ago who specialized in DID and she talked about having a different, and I know in the eating disorder community, here's one of those ones. It's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't right? Depending on on which side you're on, where it's like having a food log. So almost putting it on the door, not a food log to track calories or anything, but so the other parts know what's already been eaten. Like on the, I thought this was genius, like on the cabinet or on the fridge where it's like having the, teaching the parts to fill in on the thing, like Veronica ate Oreos this afternoon. Um, So that the bot, the person, you know, whoever is fronting or in the body can recognize like, oh, we did eat today. We had whatever, you know, we had our breakfast, we had a snack, um, because there are some times where you're so amnestic. You're like, did I eat today? What did I have to eat today? Mm-hmm. So I know people have different theories about whether you should be writing food down. And I know that for certain people with eating disorders that can trigger some things to see it all on paper. What are your, what are your thoughts on sustainable tips with the amnesia piece?
1: There's actually an app called recovery record that lots of folks in the eating disorder community use. Um, oh, and it's what's it called again? easy recovery record. Okay. And it's, it allows you to kind of go in and log what you eat. It also allows you to log where you, where you are and what you're feeling at the time. And that can also be beneficial just from a trying to keep track of my system perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it's helpful. You know, when we do use it, we use it to gain a little bit of insight or help clients also gain insight so they can also see patterns of, I had a difficult time eating at lunch and, oh, look, I was arguing with my mother <laughs> during lunch. Oh, right. Oh, Identifying look, that the trigger Three times in this week. But I see patterns like that can be really helpful. I agree with you. There are some people who will tell you, like, I absolutely cannot write down mm-hmm. what I eat mm-hmm. because it actually makes me worse. And if you know that about yourself, then don't do it. But what you could do instead, you know, if you if you find logging food is challenging and will increase behaviors, what you can do is set alarms on your phone, assuming that you have one. It just has the question, have you eaten within the past two hours? Mm-hmm. The, past two, the rule of thumb, you want to eat every two to four hours. Human bodies need fuel every two to four hours. So maybe you do but it every just,
0: three hours. Oh my God, these parts I just heard, you're not feeding us enough. Oh my God, I can't. I can't with these parts. I can't. I'm with you guys. I'm on your side. <laughs> oh my God. I can't. You're not allowed to be a guest ever again. You're getting all the parts activated about food. That's- I'm, just, I'm just kidding. We love you. Um, you know, I have to keep it real and kind of keep it light sometimes with harder topics. Um, I think we covered most of these. Oh, here's one from a clinician. How would you suggest a clinician monitor progress for their clients in eating disorder recovery, working with the different parts and their different likes, dislikes, abilities, preferences, any, any other feedback for the clinicians out there really trying to, to help out those systems with DID in terms of just kind of what. I don't know what the right words are in terms of like um, not necessarily even just monitoring, but maybe um, I think it's like validating the progress, right? Cause you don't want it to be about yeah. the the, the structure stuff, right? You want it to be like encouraging and.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, cause the way that I tend to look at folks who have DID and who have eating disorders, it's, it's um, combining, You know, nobody can see me like marrying my hands because it's podcast enough like I'm putting my hands together. Um, It's combining those treatment goals, right? Like when we think about DID, we're, we're working on awareness, communication, collaboration, so we can have some stability. And with eating disorders, we're also working on awareness and we're working on insight and understanding as to why we do what we do with food and how we meet our body's needs. And so you're kind of doing the same thing with somebody who has DID and eating disorders. There's always that awareness piece. And if somebody is not able to make or meet their nutritional goals, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean, right, that we come down harder on them and pressure them more. We want to increase the understanding around Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And when the person has DID, I like to ask, can we figure out what part might be responsible mm-hmm. for this block right now? Mm-hmm. And yeah. is it more than one part? And can we understand what's happening for those parts mm-hmm. so that we can do some work with them, mm-hmm. knowing that, yes, we have a goal to keep the body healthy. And sometimes you have to get creative with how you keep the body healthy while you're doing the work
0: in full Yeah. And in full transparency, and I'm not recommending that anyone do this, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but in full transparency, when I had that massive unraveling and I was sent to, um, I shouldn't say sent, I admitted myself to this residential treatment program in Chicago, Illinois, which is known for treatment of eating disorders. But when they were doing the intake stuff, I was like, it is hard enough for me to be here already. And I knew that the primary reason for admission wasn't about anything eating related. So when they asked me all these questions, I was like, there's no way I'm answering these the way that I know they want me to, because they're going to put me at this monitored table with all the things. And I watched the girls in there struggle so bad." You know, about like just having someone hover over their plate, you know, you gotta, you know, eat X amount of percentage of the, it seems so much more stressful. I was like, hell, if I'm doing that. Actually, this article that I wrote that's coming out in August for the National Alliance on Mental Illness is about my experience in residential treatment. Just, um, and how, you know, people missed it, but how I couldn't, this is what I I state in the article, I couldn't get enough Teddy Grahams cheese, Teddy Grahams and cream cheese, which was my favorite snack in residential and trazodone because I was just trying to numb out my experience, but it would have been 13 times worse for me if I got pegged at this, because they already didn't know what was wrong with me. That's what the whole article is about. But if they would have put me at this eating disorder table, I would have had parts just absolutely lose their mind.
1: Eating disorder treatment, I feel like is, um, for a trauma survivor, especially somebody who's it's had so no
0: shaming, pain. I'm getting all energized about it.
1: It's well, it is. It's like, I mean, it's shaming and it also reenacts trauma. Yeah. I mean, think, think about what happens. You lose all your control, including over what you put in your body mm-hmm. and you have things in your body. You don't want there. This is what cracked it's me up. And I- And I was
0: grateful for the Marlboro lights in, uh, I don't smoke anymore. I did give that up. Um, it's been a long time since I had a cigarette. Um, but, um, in residential treatment, you know, it's interesting they have these monitored freaking tables for eating disorders, but you can go outside and smoke with your treating therapist. Like what? Uh, (laughs) I'm like, I I don't understand. I I don't get, I mean, I was grateful for the cigarettes at the time, but looking back, I'm like, what? I don't even know what kind of treatment that was. That's why I was just waiting for meds every night. Teddy grams, cream cheese, med time, go to bed and just wake up and get me stabilized and get me the hell out of here because it was so restrictive on so many levels for so many different reasons. Oh, and the 15 minutes you get in the bathroom and you can't have, you know, a real razor because you might you know, hurt yourself while you're in there. And just, there's so many restrictive shaming aspects of treatment that could be done much differently and more safely than the way a lot of these treatment programs are doing it today. So I just needed to go off on that ranch and process out my own shit. <laughs>
1: there's there's lots of problems with
0: care yeah. today. And so they have been around for a long time. Yeah. And so um, let's make sure we leave our listeners with some hope and inspiration around, I I think empowerment. And I know not everybody loves that word, but like, So many people feel defeated with their history of eating disorders or the relapse or the residential treatments or not finding the therapist. And I'm a firm believer on not giving up that you, I think the therapist is, it's about having that unconditional positive regard, creating the emotional safety in the therapy room. Just like you said, you know, if you're dissociative and you know that you are, you know, working together with the therapist, I think collaboration is key involving support system, um, but I know people can kind of give up and they're like, I'm not going to get treatment for this ever because it's just so hard. What What do you want to say to those folks that to give them some hope?
1: A couple of things, right? Um, there is no one other human on the planet who is going to completely save you. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Mm-hmm. What feels really healing to a lot of people, I think, is community. Mm-hmm. Oh. You know, so the eating disorder community, the DID community, there are spaces where you're understood. People get it, and people can share their experiences with you so that you know you're not alone. Mm -hmm. You'll also find people who are ahead of the process that Mm -hmm. you're in. And you'll find people who are not where you are. They're a little bit behind the mm-hmm. process and you will be an inspiration to those people. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we forget, you know, that living in the world is not about being all independent or all dependent. Mm-hmm. It's about being interdependent. Mm-hmm. That, like, we come together for, for times of need and to support each other. And we do have times apart where we're gaining insight and reflecting and learning about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if It's really weaving together a package that feels good to you. Mm -hmm. There are people who can't stand conventional talk therapy, Mm -hmm. right? There are people who heal beautifully with a combination of body work, acupuncture, other, you know, sort of Eastern healing modalities. Mm -hmm. Explore what resonates with you.
0: I've seen people make a lot of strides and I know this isn't available everywhere and and it's a luxury, but I've seen a lot of people with eating disorders make strides in the trauma work and um, eating disorders with equine therapy because mm-hmm. it's a very grounding experience and you can build that heartfelt connection with the horses and they mirror back to you, your energy, um, all while safely processing trauma. Um, you know, obviously you have to be with trained professionals, typically the way to do equine therapy, it's a mental health professional and um an equine specialist that watches the behavior of the horses for, so everybody is safe on the ground with, with them. But I've seen re- some remarkable, um, for clients that have kind of been defeated over and over again for that to be super powerful. And again, like you said, everybody is different for some, it might be EMDR for some, it might be the equine stuff for others, art therapy. And again, if you have multiple parts, different modalities for each part is so important or different, um, not rules, but different things for each part to kind of check in around food and hunger and just teaching them all. Right. Cause how a five-year-old understands, you know, you know, I, you know, what to eat and versus a a 12 or 13 year old part. Like sometimes you do need to set limits and boundaries, not black and white rigid, you know, it's all or nothing type of boundaries with those teenage parts, but you do want to teach them like healthy moderation. You don't, you don't necessarily want them ordering, you know, three cheese pizzas and, you know, three days in a row. (laughs) You do want to teach them some healthy moderation, you know, that kind of thing. My guess is if they're, you know,
1: having a lot of a certain food multiple days in a row, they probably aren't gonna feel great and getting them to tune into that can be really helpful. But I love the concept of, you know, sometimes loving limits are needed. We need to parent our internal parts. We talk about this for people who are not plural, who have eating disorders. When we talk about healing body image, right? It's like developing that inner parent or that inner Mm -hmm. best friend who can cheer you on but who can lovingly set limits with you mm-hmm. about limiting time, the time you spend with people who aren't actually helpful for you. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, we talked about the peer support and which has been, I mean, I can even use this last weekend as an example in, in the DID community. Like those were the people that I leaned on the most to, to carry me through the very challenging um, weekend. But um, in the eating disorder recovery community, I know at times, depending on where people are with their behaviors and things that are that are happening, the peer support you want to, to I almost look at it as like, you almost want to find a peer that's a of a mentor. Like if you're early on in your eating disorder recovery and you need that peer-to-peer support, sometimes that can help if the, if you do pair up with or get feedback and support from someone who's been on the journey a while can normalize all the things, the frustration, the feelings of shame versus maybe a newbie where you're both kind of still engaging in some of those, what do they call them? Like ed behaviors, right? The ones that are are just kind of can be really self self-sabotaging, self-harming, that kind of thing.
1: And be discerning about who you're spending your time with and what you're talking about. Like trading war stories is never helpful.
0: Well, that and I've seen people get pretty competitive about their eating disorder stuff, and 100%. that just breaks my heart.
1: There's safe places. I mean, like um, Meta, which is the organization I leave, We have uh, free drop-in groups Tuesday nights online and Thursday at noon online. We have a recovery community, which is a message board forum that's moderated. It's a safe place to be. Mm-hmm. The National Alliance um, has free support groups, like pretty much every day of the week Mm -hmm. that are there's in both of our support groups. Ours is kind of like a process-based group that are a little bit smaller. There's a little bit larger, but they're licensed clinicians that are facilitating Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So they're pretty safe places to be.
0: Any? um, Oh, I was just going to say, go ahead. I'll let you finish before I ask you my next question.
1: I was just like going back to your, you know, kind of to your heart center, like, is this working for me? Does this resonate for me? is this holding me in the way that I need to be held? Is it affirming the worth that I might be questioning, Mm -hmm. but is it affirming my worth? Mm -hmm. Like that's, I think those things are really important and knowing that you're okay, just as you are, you might be struggling. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you're not okay as a person and as a human being.
0: I know. I realize, like, even with um, showing up more vulnerably, like people like panic a little bit, like, oh my, you know, it's like, everybody is struggling with something. It's just that nobody is talking about it or showing it. And that's why we need to keep it real and and show real life struggles of of the everyday human experience, regardless of any condition that we live with, because there's such this pressure to cover it all back up when it's just so it's normal to to go through those types of things. Any favorite um, books or podcasts for people out there struggling with eating related concerns?
1: oh sure um podcast for eating uh concerns why can't i think of the oh my god this is terrible i'm trying to think of the
0: name of the podcast is it anti-diet um i'm gonna look it up. i can look up podcasts right now what would what would i put in the search term christy harrison
1: it's christy harrison's i think it's anti-diet but i forget what hers is called a psych food psych there we go oh my god holy crap wasn't wasn't prepared for that one. I also actually really like the run podcast, which is all food, all bodies, all bodies, all foods, one of those two things. Um, it's a really great podcast. I honestly, sometimes I like to encourage people to branch out and listen to podcasts that really address mental health.
0: Mm-hmm. Like attention. the braving the way with Dr. Fletch podcast like the brave Dr. world
1: <laughs> podcast for example like things that are that really um normalize being in your emotions being in touch with your emotions taking care of your physical body being an individual helping you define what you want for your life and setting your own goals like those things can be really helpful occasionally i think people can get too Deeply into too much information. That's yeah. all about eating disorders. Like you're eating, breathing, sleeping it every day. Yeah, no, that
0: that's you a great point. I love that. So like, yeah, broadening the scope, right? Some mental health podcasts, maybe some stuff on trauma, right? Uh, so actually speaking on that, because everybody, I love to ask people this because so many people have different... Um, Feedback on different books that are helpful in terms of trauma. One of my favorites is healing from trauma, a survivor's guide, um, to reclaiming, um, reclaiming your life. It's like by Jasmine L Corey. I'll put it in the show notes, but what are some of your, your recommendations on books to just understand the impact of trauma?
1: Oh gosh. Um, I actually, right now, I'm, I haven't finished it yet. I started it a bit ago. I'm reading Jamie Marich's book, um, Dissociation Made, which made simple, simple, which I, mm-hmm. I really do like it because she's broken it down really nicely and there's a lot of information in there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people really enjoy Janina Fisher's books. The Living Legacy is a book that's been a favorite of a lot of people. I'm kind of like, I don't want to diss an author, but I'm kind of like, eh. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm not dissing
0: anybody. You're allowed to have an opinion.
1: Okay. I, I'm sort of, well, I don't, I know that there are a lot of folks that really love Janina's work and um, I think she's made some significant contributions to the field, but I'm kind of like, eh, From for personally, I find some YouTube stuff to be actually easier to mm-hmm. learn from than some books. I got, I've read Bessel van der books. I really did like Waking the Tiger by Peter Levine. Because That's one of my faves. Of same it's not a triggering book and it really gave some I thought some really helpful information mm-hmm. and he has another book out is it just is it called just healing trauma by Peter Levine is that the one it's um I don't know it's like a hard covered book that had some exercises in it where you like it's sort of like reconnecting with your body is in there that was decent um The Body Keeps the Score is just a lot. (laughs) Uh,
0: Don't get me started. Don't. I know that everyone freaking loves the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And The Body does, in fact, keep the fucking score. And... I don't love that book, I think it's very triggering. I think it can be helpful for people who need and want the science behind things, but there's a lot of triggering information in there and as with any resource, whether it's a podcast, a book, somebody to follow, I always say you have to use discernment and chew and if you're if you listen and you're going with it and you're jiving with it, awesome if it's helpful for you or your system but if you're if you're reading stuff or exposing yourself to stuff and it's just not sitting well with you, then then don't proceed and try something different. You know we're all. We're all, you know, so unique in how we process and absorb information. Not all resources are meant for this, for everyone.
1: You know what I really do like um, and and have enjoyed is Mike Lloyd, the CTAD clinic on YouTube, Mike Lloyd's little videos. I really, those are really informative. He's really good. He's a psychologist over in the UK. Okay. Um, The one- The ring system, also really good. The which system? The ring system. Okay. Oh, and you know who else I like? Caroline Spring has a free trauma resource guide on her website.
0: I cool. need I have tried to get in touch with Caroline Spring. I she has like such an inspiration one of the first articles when I was first, well, when it was reconfirmed that I had DID, I'm just like I need to meet this woman. I'm a little bit of a fangirl of Caroline Spring. Um, so I need to figure out how She's to great. Find- that's what I hear. I I have people that know her and they just are like, she's amazing. So that's so cool. But she's grown so much. I'm sure she can't keep up with all the requests and all that. Cause I understand she, what that's like. She you know. had
1: mentioned on a recent, um, I'm on her mailing list. So I get like her stuff that comes in on the weekends about her courses, et cetera. And she had mentioned she's been going through some health stuff. So I would okay. imagine that I yeah. make her a little bit slow getting back to folks.
0: Got it. Well, sending light and love to her. I mean, cause we all know what that's like, 100%. just a lot going on. Yeah. Um, the, the book you were talking about by Peter Levine is right here. It's called healing trauma, a pioneering program for restoring the wisdom of your body. I'm going to order that today. Actually, that sounds it's right up my alley. I don't even know why I didn't even know about that when I lo- cause it's I pretty love the good. waking tiger one. I had a um, therapist many you know, years ago that, um, recommended that
1: book and I was skeptical, but it was really good.
0: Okay. Awesome. Well, you know, I could literally leave the mic on and talk to you all day long. Same. Um, but I'm so glad that you came on just to weigh in on eating disorders. Cause it is such a struggle for so many and, and for so many with, even if they're not diagnosed with anything, you know, just in this culture, yes. a lot of people struggle with a lot of different things and you, have, you brought in some really great wisdom just even around just like getting rid of all the rules which i know in an eating disorder care like that's so important but like even just for people that listen that aren't seeing specialists just like that's like a being permission granting permission for that freedom of exploring and then kind of you know tweaking things from there so thank you for Uh your wisdom and for being a delightful human because you know i just adore you and i foresee we'll probably do something else you're still going to come over to my ig page and we're going to do a a live on my page about something so we'll want to be thinking about what we yeah. might want to do. And
1: you have to come back to Meta because everybody's been asking you to come back on a live for that. And I've got to
0: come out to Arizona and go shopping with age because it's just important. I need to do it. Um and we need to go to the smash room. Don't smash room. forget that. Present. We can go shopping smash room Sedona. We oh, can yeah. make it a whole Present. healing and plus we're both professionals. That that is a business trip, my friend. We can even throw in, in some some training or do something. Um, so yeah, that would be delightful. But yeah, a, um think ask your community what they want me to come back and weigh in on so that I have a topic that I can narrow narrow down and I'm happy to do it. And then oh yeah, it'd be we'll, great. We'll bring you over to my page and then we'll we'll do some stuff over there. So thanks again for being here and for Braving oh, the fun. Way. Thank you for Braving the Way, girl. <laughs> The Braving the Way with Dr. Fletch podcast is proudly sponsored by An Infinite Mind. Please save the date for the 2024 An Infinite Mind Healing Together Conference. The Healing Together Conference is their one-of-a-kind annual conference for people living with dissociation and DID, their loved ones, and mental health professionals. It is a psychoeducational weekend-long conference of learning and healing while building community. The conference will be offered this year, February 16th to 18th in Orlando, Florida, and will be offered virtually and in person. People that should attend, people living with dissociative disorders, especially those with DID, supporters and their loved ones of people living with dissociation and DID, mental health professionals and students who currently treat dissociative clients or would like to learn more about treating dissociation and DID, And due to the difficult and sensitive nature of this conference, only people over the age of 18 are permitted to attend. If you have any questions, you can reach out to the founder and their board of directors, Jamie Pollock of An Infinite Mind. You can find An Infinite Mind on aninfinitemind.org. Also, if you are a dissociative survivor and you are interested in possibly speaking at the 2024 Healing Together Conference, proposals are open until August 15th, 2023. You can find more information about submitting a proposal to speak for an infinite mind and their healing together conference on their website. Please see the show notes for more details. Thank you again, Jamie Pollack for your incredible inspiration. They will be in their 14th year of bringing education and awareness to all of you. I wholeheartedly support them and I am gracious to have their support and have the great honor of being their keynote in 2023. Thank you so much for sponsoring this podcast and I encourage all of you to reach out to an infinite mind in one form or another, whether that's Instagram, Facebook, and learning about the the community because this is really where the DID community started and we couldn't be more honored to have their sponsorship. Thank you again. Brave on. If you enjoyed the show today and think that it might help someone else, please share it and continue the mission behind the Braving the Way podcast, which is to bring hope, love and inspiration to the world a loving reminder that you are worthy of love and belonging simply because you were born into this world. We see you. We honor you. You are love. We are love. And love is love. Please do something loving and kind for yourself today and every day to take the best possible care of all parts of you. You are welcome to follow our journey on Instagram at at Dr. A Fletcher and at Altercology. If you are feeling called to spread the word about the Braving the Way podcast, you are welcome to screenshot an episode cover and tag at Dr. A Fletcher for a chance to win a spot on a future episode of Braving the Way. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, brave on.